During the presidential campaign, Donald Trump decried what he said was a rigged system. It turns out the system works pretty well for Trump's Republican Party. When Trump takes office in, on January 20th, Republicans will control the White House, both houses of Congress, and in 25 states, both the governorship and the legislature. Democrats say a major reason is gerrymandering. That is, they say Republicans have, Republicans have drawn voting districts to give themselves an unfair advantage in legislative elections. Today, former Attorney General Eric Holder said he is heading up a new Democratic effort to try to redraw those lines. The biggest rig system in America is, is gerrymandering, a system where the lines are drawn not to represent American communities, but to benefit politicians. A system where politicians pick their voters and not where American citizens choose their representatives consistent with our founding ideals. The effort will include court challenges to Republican-drawn maps. Can it succeed? We're going to ask two experts on the subject, Richard Brafalt, a professor at Columbia University Law School, and Joshua Douglas, a professor at the University of Kentucky School, uh, College of Law. Uh, welcome to you both. Richard, let me start with you and just kind of define the scope of the issue or, or, or problem from the Democratic standpoint. To what extent are Democrats actually at a disadvantage because of the way these legislative lines have been drawn around the country? Well, there is a lot of evidence that a number of states' Democrats are at a disadvantage <clears throat> from the drawing of the lines, that uh, Democrats do well on a statewide basis. They win statewide positions. Governor, senator, do well in the presidential election, get a significant fraction of the total vote for the House of Representatives, but then get a very small fraction of the House of Representative seats. And some of this repeats in the state legislatures. So it's hard to – each election is a little bit different from the one before. It's hard to say this nationwide and systematic. But there's increasing evidence that political scientists have found that the, that the Republican control of the redistricting process in many states has given the Republican Party an edge greater than their actual strength with the voters. Josh, today Eric Holder said that, you know, we've always had gerrymandering, but this is, quote, gerrymandering on steroids. Do you see it that way, too? Do you agree with Rich that it's a little bit more than what we've seen in the past? Um, you know, that's uh, it's hard to say in the abstract, because as Richard just said, you know, each election is different. Uh, what I will say is that Republicans did a very good job of winning state houses in 2010. Uh, and so then they were able to control the drawing of district lines. Um, you know, we redraw district lines every 10 years. Um, Democrats did a little bit of a better job of it in 2000. Uh, in, in some states, and then in 2010, Republicans reversed that. Um, I, I will also say that in some states, Democrats are just as bad as Republicans in drawing district lines to favor them. Uh, there's litigation right now going on in Maryland uh, where Republicans are challenging a Democratic-drawn uh, gerrymander. Um, but, but I would agree that in the current political environment and in the post-2010 redistricting cycle, Republicans did a much better job at drawing lines that favored their side. Part of uh, what, what Attorney General Holder was saying today was that they were eyeing the next uh, census uh, and the next round of redistricting that will happen all around the country. Uh, Rich, how, how is redistricting actually done in different places? H how many is it that most states uh, that the legislature controls it? I know there are at least uh, a couple states that have independent commissions do it, right? In most states, roughly, uh, I don't have the exact numbers in front of me, roughly three-quarters of the states, the process is a totally political one controlled by the legislature. 
in about a dozen states, there is, to one degree or another, an, either an independent or a quasi-independent process. There might be a commission which is chosen by legislators and political figures in a number of states that keep it one step out of the political process. In a smaller number of states, California and Arizona, most dramatically, there is actually an independently selected uh, redistricting commission that is not controlled by the legislature or by political leaders. And in a few other states, the process may be political, but there are some state constitutional constraints on what they do. Florida is an example of that. And Josh, so today when Eric Holder was outlining what they plan to do, one of the things was, one of the first he mentioned was focus on electoral gains, and they're going to invest in targeted governor's races and state legislative races, for example, Virginia governorship. Is that a good approach to trying to get redistricting back in the hands of Democrats? Yeah, I mean, I think this is, uh, it's got to be the approach uh, at a grassroots level. And it's one thing that Republicans did very well in 2010 is focused on uh, the 2010 state legislative uh, and gubernatorial elections. I think the legislative elections are are actually even more important than the gubernatorial elections because uh, in most states, it's the state legislature that draws the line. And so if you have um, majority Republican control of both houses, they can control the drawing of lines, both for the state legislature and also for Congress. The state legislature draws the lines for both the state uh, House of Representatives and the state Senate, as well as the uh, federal House of Representatives. So uh, I think focusing on these local state-level legislative seats uh, is the key to changing the tide for Democrats. Rich, is it possible we've already gone over a tipping point to some degree? In, in other words, because Republicans have drawn the lines in, in some of these states, and Josh, of course, is right that they've uh, Democrats have controlled some other states, but uh, because of that, you have um, uh, it, it will be harder to unseat those Republicans in those elections that Josh was talking about. And uh, because they control uh, the governorships and the legislatures, they also control the judiciary that might be uh, making rulings on these issues. It, it, it sounds like this is a really, really an uphill battle for the Democrats. I think that's fair. And certainly uh, they're not likely to have huge political gains before the 2020 uh, cycle. I think the, the best bet for thinking look at this politically is and will be, I mean, they might try and make some incremental gains in the off-year elections, like the Virginia governorship uh, and New Jersey governorships, which are in 2017, and the state legislative elections in 2018. But in some sense, their best bet is that in 2020, uh, when there's another presidential election where presidents, where Democrats tend to do better, particularly in the popular vote, uh, to try and pick up more state legislative seats, because uh, Josh is right, the real key is the state legislatures, with an eye towards the, the, the post-2020 census redistricting. But it is an uphill fight. There are the problems the Democrats have, as people have pointed out. Uh, Democrats are increasingly clustered in sort of urban and metropolitan areas, and they tend to, the more, the more densely populated areas tend to be Democratic. So the Democrats tend to win by bigger margins where they win, and that, in a sense, quote-unquote, wastes Democratic voting strength in areas where they're already strong. Democrats really have to begin an effort to rebuild themselves in areas where they were once strong, in rural areas uh, and less populated areas, small cities, uh, where they seem to have not been able to maintain a local political strength. Josh, one of the other things that Holder mentioned was legal gains, fighting in courts over redistricting maps. How tough are those legal fights? 
Well, they're generally pretty tough, although it's possible they might get easier. There's a case right now uh, out of Wisconsin in which a three-judge district court ruled the Wisconsin gerrymander to be unconstitutional under a new standard for partisan gerrymandering. The reason that litigation has been so tough to root out uh, political gerrymandering is because the court has said that there are no standards by which to uh, to evaluate whether politics has infiltrated the math drawing process too much, uh, because it's a legislative act. It's going to be political. And so for years, uh, people have been trying to come up with standards, because the court on a 5-4 vote uh, says there are no judicially manageable standards. Um, now the Wisconsin, Wisconsin case looks like it may go up to the Supreme Court, and the lower court has found that it likes this new standard. It's known as the efficiency gap. Uh, and so if the Supreme Court were to recognize this standard, uh, then it would open up a whole a new ability to challenge partisan gerrymanders. Right now, what, uh, what challengers have done is have found other ways to challenge math. So the, the requirement of one person, one vote, that all districts be equal size. Uh, the challenge on racial gerrymandering. In many ways, these challenges are end runarounds uh, attempts to get at partisan gerrymandering as well. Uh, a minute ago, Josh was talking about this political gerrymandering case that's coming up uh, to the Supreme Court. We've been used to seeing cases involving racial gerrymandering where the allegation is uh, you pack too many uh, members of one race into, into one district. Here, the claim has to do with you packed all the uh, Republican voters or voters of one party into, into certain districts to maximize one party's advantage. Is that case potentially a game changer in all this this litigation? Could it uh, change the way uh, districts are are drawn around the country? It is, and I think Josh was talking about it before the break. It it is, uh, as Josh was saying, uh, what the court has been searching for for many years is a standard, a judicially manageable standard, something that's not too discretionary, where something that looks like a formula, like one person, one vote, uh, without without requiring proportional representation, because there's no constitutional basis for proportional representation. And people know that even in any districting system, it's actually unlikely that the, the proportion of elected seat of, of, of Party winners will match the votes because there's often there'll be a, if there's a swing in in one direction a party will pick up seats across the board. So they've been looking for for efforts to measure unfairness, uh, efforts which unduly tilt of uh, districts for one party or the other, so that a party could consistently win a majority of the vote but not come close to a majority of the seats. And that's what this uh, the formula that what the the argument in Wisconsin, which the three judge court bought, was that the theory is that you can measure what might be called uh, wasted votes, uh, uh, the situation in which uh, one party, in this case it's the Republicans, set it up so that they win their districts with relatively narrow margins, narrow but consistent margins, and the Democrats win their districts by enormous margins, so that Republican seats are sort of 55-45 Republican and Democratic seats are 80-20 Democratic. And that means that you could have very large numbers of Democrats who are all packed into one, into a small number of districts who have no influence on the other districts. Districts. And uh, the plaintiffs argued, and the court agreed, that you can develop a formula which measures uh, just how much more, quote-unquote, efficient the Republican Party is in arranging its voters in its seats versus the Democratic Party. And they've done that so, looking at things historically in Wisconsin and in other states. And that's, that's the argument. So, Josh, let's talk a little bit about what Eric Holder complains about 
when he talks about this issue is the Shelby County case in which the Supreme Court cut back severely on the historic, the landmark Voting Rights Act. How much of the problems that the Democrats are complaining about can be attributed to that case? Well, I think the problems can be attributed only in part to Shelby County because uh, the law that Shelby County struck down only applied to a handful of states, mostly in the South. Uh, for those states, it's a big deal. So states like Texas, North Carolina, and, and here's why. Before Shelby County, those states had to get pre-approval, what was known as pre-clearance, but pre-approval before they could implement any new election law. And that included a new map. And so they would draw a map, and they'd have to go to the Department of Justice in D.C., or to a three-judge federal court, and basically says, here's this map that we're about to implement to, for our new redistricting. Uh, we don't think it discriminates on the basis of race. And, and the state had the burden of, of proving that before it could implement. After Shelby County, in which the court struck down the coverage formula, basically struck down which states were covered under this pre-approval mechanism, those states no longer have to go and get pre-approval. They can implement the maps right away and then wait for a lawsuit. And then instead of being proactive in uh, proving they're not discriminating, uh, they can wait for the lawsuit, and it's the plaintiff's burden to prove that there's discrimination. So I think that in the states that the Voting Rights Act covered for this pre-approval, this pre-clearance, it makes a big difference. But, of course, uh, that provision did not cover the whole country. So Wisconsin, for example, was not a covered jurisdiction. June, I suspect one other thing that may make a difference is a topic we talked about earlier this week, which is uh, uh, Jeff Sessions taking over the Justice Department. He has been uh, an opponent of some of the Voting Rights Act lawsuits that the Obama administration brought. Something Um, to talk about another day. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. I want to thank our guest, Josh Douglas, a professor at the University of Kentucky College of Law, and Richard Brafault, a professor at Columbia University Law School. That's it for this edition of Bloomberg Law. We'll be back tomorrow. Thanks to our technical director, Chris Tricomi. And our producer, David Sutterman. You can find more legal news at BloombergLaw.com and BloombergBNA.com. Coming up on Bloomberg Radio, Bloomberg Markets with Carol Messer and Corey Johnson. Carol, I think you're in the studio there in New York. What are you guys talking about today? I certainly am. It's a busy, busy day, uh, Greg. We're going to talk a little bit more about that emission scandal uh, expanding, it looks like now, to Fiat Chrysler. So we'll get into that. Also, just uh, talk about uh, the fixed income market with a top performing fund manager. So we got a lot going on. Also, Amazon creating jobs. Back to you guys. You do have a lot going on. Stay tuned for all that and more here on Bloomberg Radio. You've been listening to Bloomberg Law. This is Bloomberg. <laughs>